Good morning. It's great to have everybody here. As you can hear, uh, my voice is kind of shot. Uh, it was shot for the last four days. And so I, don't, I feel great, but just in case I didn't want to expose people, I took two separate COVID tests just to be sure. Both of them came up negative. Uh, one was on the Lumskin. Both of them came up negative. And, uh, but I feel great, and I've never felt better, but I, my voice sounds terrible. My wife would tell you I'm never in touch with my feelings, so who knows. But... <laughs> Uh, I, I feel fine. Just you'll have to deal with the, the horsey, horsey voice. Uh, a friend of mine, Christian friend of mine, a little bit of a twinkle in his eye, trying to tweak me a little bit because I'm a pastor. But he said, is, is it possible to live the Christian life without being miserable? What do you, <laughs> some of you resonate. Uh, and in a sense, I think he's getting to the fact that we've all been there. We've all had this sense, but at least a lot of people have this sense that sometimes the more you learn about Jesus, sometimes the more you read your Bible, the worse you feel about yourself. And the more you know what you should do and the more you know you're not doing it, there's a sense in which there's a misery that kind of comes with living a conflicted life. Uh, That's understandable. We all have been there, like I said. Another way to look at it, a little bit more provocative from somebody who's trying to be provocative, a guy named Ray Ortland says it this way. He says, half-hearted Christians are the most miserable people of all. Now, here's why he says that. The most miserable people of all because they know enough about God to feel guilty, but they have got, haven't gone far enough with Christ to be happy. Now, when I read that sentence, and the reason I saved it a while ago is it resonated with me. It, it really kind of describes, in some sense, my own experience, particularly in, when I was in high school, college, my early 20s, I was growing as a Christian, I was reading my Bible, and I was learning about Christ, but there was a sense in which the more I learned about God, I was kind of in that, I knew enough about the Christian life to somewhat, I mean, to feel guilty for what I was not doing. I wasn't walking with, having with Christ enough to be happy. I knew enough to be miserable, I didn't know enough to be joyful. But slowly, even during those years, to be honest, Slowly during that time, I began to learn more and more about Jesus, and I developed a belief in Jesus that replaced guilt with joy. Let me ask you a question. Do you know the secret to the kind of belief in Jesus that replaces guilt with joy? The kind of belief in Jesus that doesn't leave you stuck in kind of a, a miserable, conflicted place. And I think the most compelling place to go to to answer that question, to, to talk about this kind of belief, is in the very last book of the Bible. It's the book called Revelation. And Revelation just means a kind of a, a, a taking back of the curtain, showing behind the scenes what's happening spiritually. And we've been looking at the I am statements of Jesus. We finished this Jesus is more series by looking at the I am statements of Jesus in the gospel of John. And we looked at 14 different ways that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd before Abraham was born. I am, I am the resurrection and the life, all these things. And, and there's one more I want to look at today written by the Apostle John, just the same person who wrote the Gospel of John, wrote Revelation, and three times Jesus says something about himself, an I am kind of statement that I wanted to come to to wrap up the Jesus is more sermon series today. 
The Apostle John knew Jesus really well. He spent three years with him, and he was what would be called the beloved disciple. Jesus loved John, and and it was a kind of a a really sense of Jesus really had a a, a love particular for John. And and, and so there was always this sense of closeness with Jesus. And when Jesus rose from the dead, John had spent 40 days with Jesus and, and there was a sense of real closeness, and he knew Jesus' love. And that's why John always talks about the love of Jesus in the Gospel of John and in his letters. But when we come to the vision he had in Revelation, John says he was sitting down, and all of a sudden he had a vision, and it started with this. It suddenly started when he heard a voice speak from behind him. He says he turned around to look at the voice, and it was Jesus. And it was such a sight that he was actually thought he was going to die. The guy who spent three years with him, the guy who had probably the closest relationship with him of any of the disciples, the guy who saw the resurrected Jesus over a period of 40 days, suddenly sees him in the state he's seeing him in this vision, and he's about feeling like he's going to die. Let's pick up that in Revelation chapter 1, it's the first chapter, and it's verse 17. John says this, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Can you imagine, I mean, just whatever he saw, and he says right before this that his face was as bright as the sun. Couldn't look straight at it, it was so bright. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. This is the I am. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, what Jesus is doing there is what he did in several of the other sermons that we looked at, the I am statements of Jesus. He's taking the name of God upon himself. God called himself the I am. And in particular, he calls himself the I am in Isaiah chapters 40 through 55, where God goes out of his way to explain what it means that he is the I am. And one of those places is in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, where God says, this is what the Lord says. When you see all caps here, that's just translating the name for God, Yahweh. That's the Hebrew phrase, he is. Most often used term for God in the Old Testament. This is what he is says. The he is almighty. I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Now, God says stuff like that all the way through Isaiah chapters 40 through 55. And Jesus is obviously taking that for God on himself, that what God was saying in the Old Testament, Jesus is now saying in Revelation chapter 1. But he's not just saying it to say who he is. He's saying it to show the infinite abundance of who he is. Because three times in the book of Revelation, and John is really into symbolism of numbers, the the kind of symbolism all throughout the Bible, not a Bible code, but numbers have a certain symbol of what they mean in the scriptures. And the number three always meant something is eternally true if it was repeated three times. And so holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come is something. It's repeated three times. It's eternally true. And Jesus repeats this phrase or synonyms of this phrase three times in this book of Revelation. The next one is in chapter 21, the second to last chapter of the Bible. And Jesus says this, I am, it's a synonym, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost 
from the spring of the water of life. Now, Jesus is talking about here of the infinite nature. He is the alpha. He is the omega. He is the beginning. He's the end. Anybody who is thirsty can come to me, and I will give freely without cost from the spring of the water of life. In the time of the Bible, by the people the Bible was written in, the idea of a river, the idea of a spring meant something where there is an always supply of water. It's an infinite supply of water. No matter how many jars you fill up, there's always more coming down the spring. It's forever. And so you never get thirsty. You always have enough. And Jesus is saying, I am the beginning and the end. I am the alpha and the omega. I am everything. And everything that satisfies you. I am the living one. Everything that you need, everything that you want, everything you were created for, come to me and I will give you to drink from the spring of the water of life. But he says that because he's pointing to something else as well. And I want to talk about it in a minute. But before we do, I want to read what the next part in chapter 22, last chapter of the Bible. Third time Jesus says this. Here's what he says. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. That's that same phrase in chapter one. The beginning and the end. These are all synonyms, but it's repeated three times. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. And he says, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life. That's a weird phrase. But earlier we read in Revelation, those who wash their robes, it says they wash their robes by dipping him in the blood of the lamb. It was the death of Jesus that gives us his righteousness, that gives us robes to stand before the throne of God pure, without sin, without blemish. Those who wash their robes in my blood, those who come to me, they will have the right to the tree of life. And that phrase, the tree of life, again, just like the water of the spring of the water of life, Jesus is doing two things to take us back, take the biblical knowledgeable reader back to the very first part of the Bible. Because the Bible's one story. The very first pages of the Bible are the same exact story. It's the beginning of the story that ends with the last pages of the Bible where Jesus is saying these things. He's not just the first and the last when it comes to reality. He's the first and last when it comes to the story of the Bible. And so the very first pages of the Bible, we could say the second page of the Bible, when we go to Genesis chapter 2, the Bible's describing this place called Eden. Sin hasn't entered the world. And God has created this place called Eden. Eden is a Hebrew word that means delight. It means paradise. And it's a place that's not the rest of the earth. It's a unique place. And it's a place described with all these different things to show flourishing and beauty and transcendence and plenty and glory and delight. And it says in chapter 2, verse 8, that God took the man from outside the garden where there's thorns and thistles and dust and death, took him from there and put him in the garden. And then verse 9 of chapter 2 says this. This is all very symbolic language. Not saying it's not real. I'm just saying it's walking on all fours and then a whole 18-wheeler after that. It is full of symbolic meaning all the way through the Bible that Jesus comes back to in the words we just read. Here's what it says. It says, the Lord God, the I am God, made all kinds, all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. 
So here's what the I am does. He's creating a place and he's, place, he's creating a place and he's making all kinds of, just an abundance, all kinds of trees that, are, that grow out of the ground, trees that are described as pleasing to the eye and delicious to eat. God is creating this world that is beautiful. God is creating this world that is glorious, but it's not utilitarian. It's not just trees to turn carbon dioxide into oxygen. It's trees that are meant to bring this sense of beauty, trees that bring delight, trees that are delicious to the tongue, trees that are a physical satisfaction. That's what the I am wants. This is the world the I am wants. A world with plenty, a world with abundance, all kinds of trees, pleasing to the eye and good for food. But then he says this, he says, in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now here's something a little strange. That's a little bit odd tree. This is odd, but this is odd. And then it says, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. See, Jesus is talking about this river when he says the spring of the water of life that he'll give anyone who wants to drink to drink. There's this river in the Garden of Eden that came from the throne of God. It comes from Eden and it waters. It brings satisfaction. It never runs dry. It's infinite. No matter how much you take, there's just as much left. And it satisfies and it brings life. But there's this tree of life and there's this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God says in verse 16, he says, and the Lord God commanded the man, you're free. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Any tree you want. All these trees that I've made grow out of the ground that are beautiful to the eyes and that are delightful to taste, that are good for food, you're free to enjoy the abundance of beauty and physical satisfaction. But, he says, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, that's just weird, right? Why ruin a good thing? He's got this garden that has all these trees, all kinds of trees that are pleasing to the eye. They're beautiful, a sense of glory, a sense of beauty. They taste delicious. And there's all these trees and God commands, you know what? I want you to eat from any of them. I want you to eat from all of them. I want you to enjoy their beauty. I want you to enjoy their physical delight. I want you to enjoy my creation. Just over here, there's one. I don't want you to eat from that. But there's all these others that you can have, but I don't want you to eat from oh, There's a tree of life over there, by the way. If you eat from that, you'll live forever. But there, I don't want you to eat from this one. And you ask, why? Why have that tree? Why does that tree need to be in the middle of all the abundance? And I think here's the reason why is that God wants it so that the abundance, his infinite abundance of his pleasing to the eye and delicious and pleasing to the body, that abundance can never be separated from the abundance of who he is, from the abundance of our relationship with him. Like any relationship you have that you would consider close and connecting, it always requires trust 
and commitment. It doesn't work without that. It's impossible without that. And the reason why it's impossible without that is because we're made in the, created in the image of God and we live in God's universe and that's how God is. And so when God wants us to have this abundance of who he is, that can't be separated from trust and commitment. And so here's this one little tree that's going to that's going to determine that because he never wants to allow us to have abundance outside of our relationship with him as the source of infinite abundance. So now there's not just this tree, but there's this snake. And there's a snake in this garden that has all these trees that are pleasing to the eye and good for food. And this snake is allowed to have a conversation with the woman. And there's something about this snake, because the same three letters that mean snake or serpent, uh, same word, in Hebrew also means enchanted one divination. And so there's this sort of this divination. There's this enchanted, in the negative sense, being that's in this snake. And it's not strange to the woman to have a conversation with it. That's another whole thing of what's going on in the Garden of Eden. Maybe there's interaction with spiritual beings. I don't know. But here's what it says in Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that Yahweh, the I am God, had made. And he said to the woman, Satan, the, the, by the way, Revelation says this is the devil and Satan. Satan says to the woman, I, I just want to get one thing straight, kind of like Columbo. I just want to, there's just one thing. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? I mean, that's weird that there would be all these trees and you can't eat from any of them. Now, the reason he's asking is because he wants her to focus on the one that she can't. And so she says, no, we can eat from those trees. He just said, we can't eat from that one. And Satan goes, oh, that one. Okay, yeah, now that makes sense. What do you mean that makes sense? Oh, no, no, he's just, he just, that's the one that would you become like God if you eat that knowing good from evil. I can see why he doesn't want you to take from that. Okay, that's, never mind, go ahead. And she, she looks at it and she goes, well, no, what do you mean? I don't, I, what am I missing out on? Nothing, don't worry about it. Just, you'd be like God and all that, but that's okay. Just move on. Well, no, no, wait. And then it says, when she saw that the tree was pleasing to the eyes and good for food, and it was good to gain wisdom, she took and she ate and she gave to the man and he ate as well. And all hell broke loose because all of a sudden they went from this abundance of all these things, pleasing to the eye and good for food and the tree of life where you would live forever, all of a sudden it shrank down to dust and thorns and thistles and death. How did it happen? I mean, besides what I just said, how in the world did Satan get them to somehow see the abundance of trees that are pleasing to the eye and good for food and somehow shrink that down to something that they can't, to see the one tree as something that they can't have. This is scarcity. This is no longer, this is missing out. This is what I want. God's command is somehow scarcity, and the thing that he forbids is the abundance. And he completely inverts how they perceive abundance and scarcity. This is missing out. This is an abundance I'm missing out on. This is God's will, but it's the abundance that I want, and I can't have all these over here. Well, that's somehow shrunk down in her mind, their mind, as something that doesn't matter as much. That's confining. That's scarcity. It's the inversion. 
of scarcity and abundance. It's the opposite. One tree somehow became abundance and all these trees somehow became defined as scarcity. And he does the exact same thing now. That's why Genesis is such an amazing book. I'm convinced the Holy Spirit ultimately had to be the author of it because every single chapter has stuff like this. Every chapter has stuff that's so far ahead of where we are as a culture in understanding how just human nature works and the nature of when we make choices like that, thinking we're going to get more because we're afraid of missing out and we take it and it shrinks our life even more. And we keep walking away from the thing that would really make our lives bigger and full of pleasing to the eyes and glory and transcendence and delight and we keep shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, thinking that we're choosing the abundance. Just think about it in this way. When it comes to, oh, I don't know, Jesus' command to give. I'm just trying to pick one that's kind of obvious. When Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive, that sounds backward to us. Why would giving be something that's bringing blessedness, bringing abundance, bringing pleasing to the eye and good for foodness? Why would giving be something that's bringing abundance? Wouldn't keeping be abundance? Jesus says, no, keeping is scarcity. Giving is abundance. When you give, you're actually storing up treasure in the kingdom of God that's forever. When you keep, moth and rust are going to destroy it. It's just going to become dust and death and thorns and thistles. Well, that doesn't make any sense to us because it seems obvious to us that keeping is more and giving is less. And Jesus says, no, what's opposite is you've got inverted the entire abundance scarcity equation. That's why Jesus talks about money more than any other subject. I've been read several places. He talks about money, 25% of the things that Jesus teaches on, teaches about money along the lines of what we just said because he's trying to give us abundance. And somehow we see that command as scarcity. Here's the thing. You will always be miserable as a Christian. You'll always be miserable in your faith when you get the abundance scarcity equation inverted. That's why Jesus says in the last words of the Bible, three times, chapter one, verse 17 don't be afraid. Now he's talking to John here because John just saw something that scared the daylights out of him, thought he was going to die. Jesus put his hand on him and said, don't be afraid. But we can also interpret it in light of the story, the whole story of the Bible. Don't be afraid of missing out. Don't have FOMO. The very first FOMO came from the serpent in the garden, but you don't have to give in to FOMO because you're not missing out when you're obeying me. You're getting the whole thing. Don't be afraid because I am the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning of the end and the end. I'm everything. I am infinitely abundant. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I'm life itself. I am the I am. I'm the source of all that exists. I'm the giver of all life. There is no life apart from what I give. Even the tree was one I created. I'm the source of all existence. I'm the living one. I was dead. I died. And now I, and look, I'm alive forever and ever. And guess what? I've got the keys to death itself. I am life itself. I died, 
I took the death that you had to die because of eating. I died and I broke through the other side of death and I rose from the dead and now I have the key and I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. I am the alpha and the omega. I am infinitely abundant. You can't run out of water that I give. You can't run out of the fruit that I can create. I am and I have the keys. Just come to me. But it all is true or not, whether or not, Jesus rose from the dead. You don't have to get into this whole thing in your mind of all this, whether God exists, the Bible's true. I mean, all those things are really important. All those discussions are great to have, but the bottom line, the one number one question that kind of everything else flows from, the one domino that will knock all the other dominoes down is whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. And John the Apostle, who spent 40 days with him, was absolutely convinced that he did. And so he even spent the rest of his life proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. History says his eyes were plucked out, and he's exiled on the island of Patmos, and that's where he has this vision. The vision he saw Jesus with, he didn't even have eyes to see in his body. Peter was crucified upside down because he wouldn't stop proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. Paul was executed by Nero because he wouldn't stop proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus because they saw Jesus. It wasn't something they had to believe with a blind leap of faith. They saw him. They lived with him. They were with him for 40 days. The the, the history is clear that people who had that faith were able to face anything. And they did. And they faced death. There's a guy in the next century that in 155 AD, his name was Polycarp. And he was somebody that was actually taught the Christian life by the Apostle John. He's right next to where John's writing the book of Revelation. And John died really old in the late first century. Polycarp died really old in the middle of the the 100s. They knew each other, and he got his faith from John. And at the end of his life, he wouldn't stop proclaiming the resurrected Jesus. And he was going to be killed if he didn't stop, and he didn't stop. And so they burned him at the stake. He wasn't about to recant because he knew Jesus rose from the dead. He could face anything because he knew where abundance was, and he knew this wasn't it. And so he was burned at the stake. And you know what? It was one of those awkward fires where it burned him and it burned him and it burned him, but it didn't kill him. And he was dying in the sense of he was in agony, but he wasn't dying. And so eventually they just had to stab him with knives to kill him. They just couldn't bear his screaming anymore. People that knew Polycarp lived well into the 200s, and they would face the same persecution. They would be fed to wild animals in in coliseums. They would be put on poles and used as candle lighting for the parties of the elite. But they wouldn't recant because when you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, when you're convinced, you can face anything because you understand where abundance and scarcity really lie. Because you understand that Jesus is the alpha and the omega. Here's the secret to how to have a belief in Jesus that replaces misery with joy. And that is, don't forget to believe in Jesus. It's not a, a list of things. You're actually believing in a person. You're believing in the one who says he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the living one, the one who has the keys. See, what, it's, it's not about knowing, what, it's not knowing more about Jesus. It's not forgetting what you know. 
if you know more about Jesus and that causes you to feel guilty, that's because you're forgetting the real Jesus in the Bible. There's a place for guilt, but it's a guilt that brings joy because you know where abundance is. You're not stuck there. It's not hopeless. You know it's a process, and you can come to the one who's the water of life. You can come to the one who has the keys, who broke through death and rose again from the dead. So here's my question. What would it take for you to stop playing games with Jesus? What would it take? For you to take what he said and believe it, that he really is the first and the last. He really is the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's everything. And he's infinitely abundant in everything you long for, everything you want. Satan just doesn't have a thing except the inversion so that you think his scarcity outside the command of God is where abundance is. And that's why your life will shrink and shrink and shrink. And you're miserable. But Jesus says, come to me and begin the process of believing who I really am. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, and you are the living one. And you give from the water of your river of delights. You give from your living water and you give from your tree of life. All we have to do is keep coming to you and learning what it means that you are the one who is infinitely abundant. Everything outside of your will is scarcity and thorns and thistles and dust and death. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and receive God's blessing. From 2 Corinthians 4, 6, may the God who said, let light shine in darkness, make his light shine in your heart to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. Have a great week.